Good morning, Parallel Church, one church in multiple locations. Welcome to all of you joining us in Lethbridge with Pastor Ralph and Cindy. Welcome to you guys. Welcome Claire's home with Pastor Brian and Heidi. Welcome to everyone joining us in Okotoks with Pastor Joel and Tanisha. Welcome Lloyd Minster with Pastor Mike and Kara. And this morning I am in Tabor with Pastor Renee and Jill and enjoying our campus there. And welcome to all of you joining us online, wherever you are around around the world, a special welcome to you. We are continuing our series, Let's Take Our Job Back, in which we are asking some hard-hitting questions and we're, we're really diving into, man, what is the church all about? And is the church that we know and have grown up in and that we're experiencing today the same as what Jesus had intended when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Is it the same or do we look a little bit different? And to be honest, I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to, I'm diving into some hard kind of corners in this whole thing. Not, we're not navigating and skipping some things. To be honest, the, I'll answer it right up front. I don't think the church that we're experiencing today, the church that I have grown up in is even close to what Jesus had intended. And what I'm trying to get back to personally, and I'm dragging all of you with me on this journey, I'm trying to get back to what Jesus had originally intended the church to be. Because I guess my discontent had, it was revealed through COVID in multiple different ways. It was the great accelerator, the great revealer. But I think in this, in the political upheaval that we've been through, the, the, uh, pandemic, all that kind of stuff going on, the racial tensions, all of these responses, specifically how the church responded. I've come to the conclusion that we have left our lane and that we are, I don't know, we've minored in some of the, the majors and we have majored in some of the minors. And I think we just got to get back on key. I, I just, I just feel if we really need to do that. And as a church, I don't want to waste our time. I want to, I want to do what Jesus intended us to do. I want to get the church back to its job. So let's take our job back. In this series, we have been in particular looking at and highlighting how often in the Bible, and I don't think there's, there's any coincidence, how often in the Bible God refers to cities and specifically calls people to cities. And Jesus looked at Jerusalem, a city, and wept over it and then died for it. And Revelation is a new city coming to Revelation 21. And Nehemiah built a city. And Jonah was called to redeem a city. And all of these, you know, the, the city church of Ephesus and the city church of you know, Corinth and all, all of these churches, everything was built on, the church was built on cities. And we're going, I, I think that we need to focus on that and saying our job, I believe what our job is as the church is not to be a gathering in a building on a weekend. I think our job is to redeem cities, rebuild cities, restore homes that we are called for such a time as this on purpose for a purpose for such a time as this. So We've been looking at and we've been taking a, a deep study into the book of Nehemiah and looking at the book of Nehemiah different than just a story or an Old Testament account of, of, of a very cool event. And we're looking at it as a template of how to rebuild a city. Nehemiah saw the state of his city and, and he had very intentional and very successful plans that he put in place and strategies that he put in place that got to the place where he rebuilt the city. So we're looking at it as a template and we've been looking at Nehemiah chapter one and in Nehemiah chapter one, we've learned 
that Nehemiah firstly didn't look to blame somebody else for the state of his city, that we shouldn't look to blame anyone else for the state of the church or the state of our country or the state of our province or the state of our cities, that Nehemiah first and foremost accepted personal and corporate responsibility. He said, I and my father's house have sinned. He accepted responsibility. The second thing he did is that he anchored himself in his identity as a child of, uh, of God, but also as an Israelite, God's chosen people. And he said, this is who I am. Get, you know, he accepted responsibility, but then he said, I know who I am and why it is, is my responsibility to rebuild this territory. He knew his identity and we've been learning about our own identity, that we're ambassadors of Christ, that we're, it's our responsibility on this planet today. That's our responsibility and it's our call. It's our destiny that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit and appointed us to do, make a difference. This is what we're, we're not here by accident. We're not here just to take up space and escape this, this miserable world to get into heaven one day. We're here to change something and to bring change and to, and to be the light that, that we're the light of the world, Jesus told us. And that if darkness exists in the world, it's because the light hasn't turned on. So come on, let's, let's know our identity, what our calling is. The third thing that Nehemiah did is he didn't just pray and cast the blame on God or cast the responsibility just on God to do all the things. He, he didn't just pray to God for a solution. He prayed for the opportunity to be the solution. There's a big difference in our prayers. We can say, God, heal our land. God, you know, fix our city. God, change them. We can ask God to do it or we can say, God, give me an opportunity to be the solution, to be the light. The fourth thing we learned is that immediately when he got the call and God answered his prayers, that immediately he went out and he lived happily ever after. That didn't happen. He immediately went out and immediately he faced opposition and that we should expect opposition. That when we start taking our job back, it's not going to make everyone happy. Like, let's just get over that. And that doesn't mean that we're, that we're not called or that God's not in it. If there's opposition, if we learned anything throughout the Bible is that Hey, expect opposition. Jesus was full on in the will of God and, and, and faced opposition. Come on. And then we learned last week that it's the kingdom. It's all about the big K kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. That Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah 1, really was a kingdom prayer. He prayed to the king and he acknowledged God as king. He acknowledged that the king had a commandments and a government, ordinances and statutes. There was, there was a government in place. He recognized that the territory of Jerusalem was God's chosen land, this place where you chose to dwell. In other words, he recognized that it was the king's territory, which gave him the confidence that this is, this is my call to redeem that. We need to know our territory, our lane, what we're supposed to be doing, our responsibility. And then fourthly, he's recognized that he was a citizen of that kingdom and therefore had a response. So that's what, we, what we've learned. Uh, we're going to continue in, in, uh, in chapter two now. And all the people rejoiced. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're finally in chapter two. No, we're going to continue in chapter two. We're going to pick it up uh, where we left off a, a number of weeks ago. But we're going to pick it up in verse 11 in, in Nehemiah chapter two. It says this, it says, so Nehemiah again reporting and writing what all the events that happened. He says, so I came to Jerusalem and, and was there for three days. Okay, and then it says this, and I rose in the night and I and a few men with me. And it says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal in which I was riding. 
So Nehemiah is inspecting the city. He's got to go and see this for himself, and he goes alone. He doesn't take all the people with him. He goes alone. We'll get to that in a moment. Then he says this, um, verse 13. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate. Some translations say the dung gate. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were consumed by fire. So Nehemiah goes and he's, he's heard the reports of Jerusalem, but the first thing he does when he gets to Jerusalem is he's, he's not just satisfied with hearing the reports, he chooses to inspect and to investigate for himself. There's, there's, a, there's a principle here that we cannot miss. And especially in, in our world of social media, don't believe everything you read, everything that somebody says. Don't believe it verbatim. Go and inspect yourself. It's not just good enough to hear. We need to inspect and find out for ourselves is what they're saying true and, and investigate. If we stop investigating, it's easy to be deceived. Right. So when Nehemiah goes before he ever devises a plan, organizes anybody, he arrives and he goes alone, doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He goes and he inspects for himself. Don't just, you know, go off what you hear. Do your own investigation. All right. Verse 14, it says this. Then I passed on uh, to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. Uh, but there was no place for my mount to pass. That's, he's, he's describing in detail how, how destructive this is. Like he couldn't, there's certain parts of the city that were so, you know, so ruins, rocks on top of one another, so, so much mess and, and debris and destruction that he couldn't even, his horse couldn't even get through. So then he says in verse 15, so I went up at night uh, by the ravine, inspected the wall, and there I entered the valley gate again and returned. He says, I'm doing my own inspection. And he spent, you know, uh, uh, he, he went and did his own inspection. Now, for me personally, honestly, when I felt this, this angst um, and this, this, these questions surfacing in me about the church and the state of the church and, and asking myself, is the church today the church that Jesus had originally designed? Are we playing the same tune he wrote? Like, I, I wanted, when I felt that angst, I felt like I could listen and I heard some others saying the same thing. I, I heard from many of you kind of asking questions and along the similar vein. And I, I went quite honestly and did a whole lot of personal investigation, study, uh, enormous amount of study, enormous amount of reading, enormous amount of research. In fact, the reason why I was away for, for two weeks, just you know, a couple of weeks ago, is because I had taken all that in, in, that inspection that I had been doing, that research that I've been doing, and I began to write it out and into what is going to hopefully become a, a book sometime. It was just going to be an observation of what I see is going on in, in the church today. And, and in particular, most of the book is going to be a whole lot of church history. And in particular, I'm going to be, I focus a lot of attention in the first three centuries of the, the church. And then we, I go through, I, I cover basically from, from the inception of the church to today in much of the research. But I was looking not just for what the church believed, but what they did. Because again, I went looking for, okay, if we're not playing the same tune that Jesus composed, when did they play the same tune? When was it on tune? And I'm thinking that the people that most played it on tune are probably the ones that heard the original melody in the first place. 
when Jesus composed it and the disciples went out in the early church and they taught the next generation, the next generation, and for a series of time. And then I wanted to know, when did we go off track and how off track are we and have we ever come back on track? I had to investigate for myself. And much of what we're preaching is, is a part of that investigation, but there's so much more that I want to share with you. And can't, can't, I, I will over time and we're going to get it out. But I encourage you, don't just take my word for it. Like, come on. Don't just, just hear my opinions. Research, investigate for yourself. Let's learn from Nehemiah because this is so vital. This is so important. If we're called on purpose for a purpose for such a time as this, let's know, not just somebody else's opinion, let's know what that calling is and what that purpose is. And let's be, let's be anchored in knowing that we know that we're doing what God designed us to do, not what tradition is asking us to do, not what culture is asking us to do, but what did Jesus ask us to do? What is he expecting? And what will he eventually inspect? Come on. We need to, I want to be clear on where our walls are broken down. And man, I, I, don't, I don't know about you. For me, I'm tired of playing church. And I'm tired of minimal results. And I'm tired of just week, you know, a, a weekly social club. Man, I, I love getting together and we got together and all the rest of it. But listen, it, the church is so much more. And it's designed to be so much more. And Jesus meant it to be so much more. And when we got into COVID and, and pastors began, you know, fighting over the right to be sitting in pews shoulder to shoulder and calling that church and saying that the government's taking that away from us and the church is no more. I'm going, how weak are we? Like how, how, how flimsy are we that if we can't have our social club gathering in person on a Sunday, is that, is that the gates of hell? That Jesus said was going to come against the church? Because I, I don't know. I, I, I just, something didn't sit right. And I was like, okay, if, what have we reduced the church to? And what, are we, how do, what is our job, like job description as given by Jesus? What are we supposed to do? How do we get it back? And how do we get back on track? And so when I feel Nehemiah's Angst, maybe, or I, I don't know. I'm wondering what Nehemiah is thinking as he's, you know, at night. He's going in places where it, it made an impression on him where he's like, I, I went to so, such places where I couldn't eat, my horse couldn't even get through. And he's describing the destruction. And I'm wondering if he's looking at this and feel, I wonder if he's feeling discouraged. Uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at. I was going like, I, I, I'm trying to, does he feel discouraged? Like, this is such a mess. What am I doing here? What could I possibly do about this? I'm just a cupbearer. What could I do? Well, let's, let's read on and see what, what he does. Verse 16 says, and he reiterates it again, the, the officials did not know where I had gone. And he, three times he, he mentions that he didn't bring any leaders with him or anything. And it just kind of, I, I, I meditated on that. I didn't know, I don't know, I don't know what to think about that. Other than I'm wondering if Nehemiah had so anchored himself in his identity and in his faith and in the vision that he didn't want outside chatter to, to distract him from, from the purpose and the vision that he had in his heart. And sometimes, remember when Jesus, you know, healed 
uh, uh, Peter's relative and he shooed out all the rest of the relatives from the room and he just had certain people left in the room so that he could heal. He did, Jesus, this is God, didn't want outside negative opinion, chatter about what is really, you know, you know, opinions. Jesus wanted his faith to, ri to, be, to rise above. And I'm wondering if Nehemiah is not kind of like making sure that I I'm, I'm gonna see for myself, I'm gonna investigate for myself, but I don't want somebody's lack of faith I don't want somebody to go, oh, this is too big. Oh, this is too much. Oh, this, I don't know. I, this is like, I don't know if we could do this. I don't know. That kind of chatter. He's like, I, he, I, I think Nehemiah wanted to take his job back and he didn't want to have, he didn't want to have excuses or discouragement on him while he sought for the first time. He goes, I, officials did not know where I had gone, what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the, the officials of the rest uh, who did the work. Sometimes leaders need to just do their inspection first. To hear from God first. That's so important for all of us. Everyone knew the state of the city. And it, but the truth is, is at this point, the city had lied in, laid in ruins for 70 years. Everybody knew the state of the city. And it had sat that way for 70 years, probably because the work was too overwhelming. And so Nehemiah probably felt that it was a little bit overwhelming himself. But he, and he reports it, he sees it, but he didn't want to have that outside chatter. Now, Leaders need to get to the place where they, we need to get clarity from God on what the actual problem is, not what the symptoms are. Okay, and so in my own inspection, and there's, this is just some of what I see with the church of today. This is what I see as some of the problems of the church of today that, that I think we need to be aware of and pay attention to. So this is my report back to you on the state of the church, the state of the city, and the walls are tumbled down. And we all know that something's not right. We all know it. Listen, if you don't know it, um, that's okay. But I guarantee you that most of the world sees it too. Like the world has called us, <laughs> called fouls on the church for a long time. And said like, you're not, you're not doing it. Remember when we did the fill in a blank series and we had we asked people what their opinions of church was and we couldn't find anything positive from anyone on Facebook. But then we asked them what the, the opinion of Jesus was and we couldn't find barely anything negative about Jesus. Our Christ, this is the words of Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ. It's your Christians I can't stand. He says, your Christians aren't anything like your Christ. Ouch. So let's get back. Let's get back to what Jesus designed and who Jesus was and that make sure that we are truly Christian, Christ-like. So here's some of the observations I see of the state of the church. These are just overarching problems. Try not to say symptoms, but problems. The first problem I see is disunity. Now, why do I see that? Did you know that there are 45,000 different denominations on the planet today? 45,000, not different churches, different denominations. 45,000. I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's a problem. 
That's a problem because Jesus prayed. He didn't pray, God, keep them theologically correct, make sure that they baptize right, make sure that they preach it right, make sure that they, they take communion right. He said, God, make them one so that the world will know. John 17, 45,000. That's 45,000 different castles flying 45,000 different flags saying they're representing one kingdom. No wonder the world is confused. No wonder we can't find our own identity. We're 45,000 different flags, all claiming to be one kingdom, divided over you know, doctrines and theologies and practices and, and moral issues and divisions, like multiple visions and deciding that we know we want to do it this way and we want to do it this way. That like, like we, we are more clear on what we disagree on than we are on what we agree on. And that's a problem. Disunity is a, a major issue. Disinterest is the second one. And what I mean by disinterest is I mean that that there's people inside the church that have lost interest in the kingdom and, and they just, it's become a religious ritual to attend and be a, be a part of the church and to go to church has become more of a, a moral, um, I don't know, guilt appeasing practice than it has been the engagement in what the church is and moving it forward. It's a place we go, it's not who we are. And there's just a growing disinterest. And COVID accelerated that because churches all over the world are saying people aren't coming back. And, and I'm like, yeah, we're disinteresting. Like there's, there's, no, interest, there's no interest here, right? And, and they're disinterested. What I found um, interesting in some of my research is that, is that Marth, in Martin Luther's uh, Protestant Reformation, 1517, was, it was an attempt to remove the bishop-controlled church. And what I mean by that is that the only person that was able to have access to a Bible were the bishops. These are the overseers of city churches. The only person that had access to a Bible was a bishop, and they would use that to control. The only one who could you know, get you to God or speak on God's behalf was the bishop. Martin Luther began, began to get promoted within the church and he said there's something wrong here you're reading the gospels like this is not this is not right and so he the, stated in in October 31st 1517 he, he posts his 95 thesis on the uh, on the door of the Wittenberg church and and basically the Protestant Reformation was birth so its initial thing was that it was fighting against the bishop controlled church but listen I'm Protestant most of you are Protestant um our current Protestant system has made Christianity largely a spectator sport where it's basically a pastor. It's, not, it's a pastor-driven church where we call our pastors ministers. And we expect them, as the pastors, to do all the work of the ministry. And we've created these, these spectator sports and pews where people observe others doing the ministry and don't feel the obligation to do it themselves. That's not what... Paul said, Paul said in Ephesians that the role of the pastor in particular is to equip, skill develop the saints to do the work of the ministry. 
And because we've created Christianity today in much the same way that a spectator sport and kind of done the exact same thing that we fought against hundreds of years ago, it's created disinterest. It's a spectator sport, so no wonder we're getting bored and disinterested. That's not your fault. That's my fault. That's the system's fault. I and my father's house of sin, we have created traditions in the system that is not biblical, is not Jesus's way. Jesus never intended a few to be called. Only, only a few. He, intent, he put a calling and a ministry on each one of us. And there's, there's the ones of us who have been called aren't, aren't called to lord it over you. We're called to serve you and your ministry and equip you and your ministry. And that's what our job is. And we got to do something. I, I, I want to I share another scripture that just, I don't know, I, I had discovered and I, it alarmed me so much. And, and hopefully you'll get it. First um, John 2, John, the disciple of Jesus, writes this. He says, he says on, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you. He's, he's basically summing up. Jesus says, love one another command. He's, so he's talking, he's been talking about this. He says, I am writing a new command to you, which is true, which is true in him, because he did it, and in you, you're doing it, um, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's, he said, you're doing it. And when you do that, darkness has to go. Light is turned on. It's, it's working. He says, the one who says that he is in the light, okay, he's talking to believers, the one who says that he is in the light, has been enlightened, has, is a believer now, and I'm in the light, he says, who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. I'm like, okay, I've preached that before, that, that's all good. He goes on and he says, the one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light, okay, and there is nothing in him to, to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, that's, that's fascinating. That's all, that's all good. But I want you to know what I discovered is that the word hate is a really weak translation of what John originally wrote in, in Greek. The word hate in our society is uh, the word hate is to despise or you know it's 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 hate we, we know what hate means but he's not and so I've read this scripture and going well I don't hate anyone you know I, that's that's all good like I, I don't have that hate and I can forgive and this is all about forgiveness and I don't hate so all good John didn't say despise Don, John didn't say he's talking about somebody having enemies that he despises the word hate in the original Greek is a word called, is a word, missio, which directly translated means detest as part of it, love less, esteem less. It can also be translated, and this is where the meaning of this word is, is placement is, is to postpone in love, okay, to esteem light, postpone in, in love and, and esteem, to, to slight through the oversight of the circumstances or disregard um, and, and have an indifference to a thing. <laughs> Wait. When he says, if you love one another as Christ loved, you'll be in the light. But if you ignore 
are disinterested in or dismissive of someone else and someone else's needs, you can't claim to be in the light. Man, when I, when I read that and I got an understanding of that, I was like, oh, guilty. Like the spies, I can, I can, I can alleviate that conviction. To show disinterest or indifference to someone's need, come on. No wonder we as a church are in the dark is because we've been doing, we've been in the midst of all this, we were so, so more interested and passionate about our need to meet in person than we were in the needs of the community around us and different, different things. And we showed indifference to different things. And come on, no wonder we're out of our lane. Again, that's not your fault. That's part of the, the system that we've created in the church where we turned it into a spectator sport. That's a social club that meets on a weekly basis. We don't forsake meeting together. We just got to look at the purpose. Isaiah said, Isaiah 58, you know, all your rituals and all the rest of it, that doesn't impress me. Worship rituals, the fasting rituals, that doesn't impress me. What impresses me is feed the hungry, clothe the, like, take care of the needs. And then he says, yeah, I mean, the natural response would be, well, then I guess we don't have to go to church. And then, he's a, then right after verse 12 in Isaiah 58, he's like, and keep the Sabbath. Why? But, he says, but then he says, but just don't make it about you. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, church. We got, we're okay? The third thing that I see in the church is it's dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional because, and I, I'm not speaking about everyone else and every other church. Please don't hear me say that. I'm speaking about the Big C Church, us, me included. Dysfunctional because of our response or lack of response to pandemics. Our response or lack of response to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and all the craziness that goes on in all of that is dysfunctional. We, we, we stepped into lanes that weren't ours to step in. And I, I, or we ignored. Both of those are in the dark. The 2020 elections in both the U.S. and Canada showed, revealed the dysfunction of the church. The residential schools... All that coming forward revealed the dysfunction of the church. Do I need to go on? How about the Ravi Zacharias scandal, the Carl Lentz scandal, the Brian Houston thing that's going on? Like there's, like, and, and the world's, like, the public scandal's all over the place that's revealing not just the dysfunction of individuals, but the, the, the variety, the, the, how they keep on coming. It reveals dysfunction of a system of a church that is allowing and propagating and allowing these things to happen. Come on, we got to take our job back. So what am, I, what am I doing? Nehemiah inspected the walls and I'm inspecting and saying, hey, the current status or going back to normal is not acceptable. We just can't do it. So we got to get our job back. We got to do something more. Nehemiah, after he, he inspects, what does he do? He gets the inspection. He sees it. I'm sure he's overwhelmed. I'm sure he's like, oh my, this is a bigger job than I even imagined. This is what he does. Look at this, verse 17. He comes back and he says, then I said to them, you see the situation 
the bad situation we are in. He's realistic. It's under, understatement. Then he says this, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned with fire. But then his response is, come, let's rebuild the wall. You see it? Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we are no longer, we will no longer be a disgrace. So come on, church. This, this is what I'm saying. Come on. We see the state. We can, we, can, we can engage and do something about it or we can back off and get overwhelmed like, we've, like everyone's been doing. We've been doing it and say there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. I'm talking to you, Parallel Church. I'm saying we, we're not those people. We're going to follow what Nehemiah said and said, come, you see the situation? We're realistic about the situation, but we have to do something about it. We must do something about it. We have to rebuild the cities. We have to rebuild the church so that we are no longer a disgrace because people's eternities depend on it. Come on. But you hear in Nehemiah his faith and his resolve. He's like, come. He saw it, but he didn't allow what he saw to distract him, discourage him. He maintained his focus, maintained his faith. And then he says this, then he tries to share the faith with them. And he says this, and I told them about how the hand of God has been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which have been spoken to me. And he, this is, he's building their faith. And I'm gonna, get to, I'm gonna get to this. I'm gonna build your faith over the number of weeks that we're, we're gonna get to this and show you how God, just, just in this slight little pivot, how God has been doing some things that is remarkable, that is, an, is a, I don't know, is just, it seems like God is pleased that we're moving this direction. Not saying that we're perfect, or not saying that we got it all figured out, or that there's not messes still. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, we just move in this direction and all of a sudden we're seeing unusual miracles and unusual provisions and un unusual connections. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you start to see. And, if, and, and I'm telling, I'll tell you, and I'll go through this because I'm trying to build our faith. So he tells them what their faith is. Then it says in verse 18, it says, then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Let us arise and build. We can get overwhelmed with the state of the church. And honestly, before Nehemiah showed up, these same people who had been there, had seen this every single day, they had been overwhelmed by the situation too. But because of Nehemiah's faith and his focus and his resolve, they said, let us arise and rebuild. Let us arise and rebuild. It's time for us to arise and rebuild and take our jobs back. How? Well, Jesus told us, love as Jesus loved. I think this is what I want to see. I think we can see the disunity and we can counter it by choosing to outlove. We can see the disunity, but we can count, uh, counter it by choosing personally, all of us, not just us corporately, not just me as a pastor, all of us. We can see opportunities to say, I see disunity and I'm going to counter it by being unique. I'm going to be different. I'm going to choose. I'm gonna, it's a choice. I'm going to choose to out love. We can see the disinterest and we can counter that by choosing to outserve. 
Come on. We can see disinterest and we can counter by choosing to outserve. We can believe that everyone is a minister and ministry is not confined to the four walls of a church or to our weekly events or to putting on, you know, functions at a building. Our, our ministry is day by day, 160 hours of, uh, 68 hours of the week. It's in our workplace. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our schools. It's wherever we go. We are going to choose to outserve, outlove, and then we can see the dysfunction and counter it by choosing to outgive. What does, that, what does that have to do with dysfunction? Outgive. Jesus said, listen, we can see this function and it can weaken our hearts. But Jesus said, you can lead your heart by, with your treasure. And I believe that we can give and we can invest and say, we can, we're going to outgive. We're going to outgive in, in service. We're going to outgive in love. We're going to outgive in finances. We're going to be generous and be the church and not just wait for the church. We're going to be the church and lead our hearts with our wallets. We aren't utilizing the gifts to just put on events, pay for buildings, or countering the dysfunction by focusing on the least of these. And both are loving and are giving. So today's takeaway is simply this, church, come on. Let's rise and build. Let's rise and build. Let's rise and build by outloving. Hashtag. Come on. Hashtag it. <laughs> outlove, outserve, outgive. Outlove, outserve, outgive. We're going to rise and build by outloving, outserving, outgiving. Let's go. In Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for your help. We thank you, Lord. You see the state. And I pray, forgive us, first of all, for where we have not done our job and where we've abdicated our responsibilities, where we have shown indifference and lack of care and we've, we've backed off. Lord, God, forgive us for we're in the dark, but Lord, I pray we would, we would step up and, be, and come into the light by out-serving, out-loving, out-giving in every opportunity we see at work, that we would out-love, out out-serve, out-give. Lord God, as employees, we would out-love, out-serve, out-give. As bosses, we would out-love, out-serve, out-give. As students in school, we would out-love, out-serve, out-give. As Christians in our neighborhood, we would shine a light by out-loving, out-serving, out-giving our neighbors, those who deserve it, and especially those who don't. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and opportunities, the eyes to see the opportunities in front of us, the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to run through a prayer with you right now that does exactly that. And it's not joining a church. It's not joining a religion. It's simply just a relationship with God. So if you'd like, uh, close your eyes, bow your head, repeat this prayer after me. So dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you now to become my Lord, to become my Savior, to become my friend. I thank you that my past is past and that I can begin anew with you today. My heart is yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So guys, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, first off, congratulations. Second off, there's a link that has been posted in the comment section below. Uh, click on that link, fill out the form. We'd love to just be a part of your journey. Love to help you out uh, in any way in this new uh, decision that you've made. Uh, and congratulations on this decision.